Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From the Gospel according to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Each week in the Eucharistic liturgy, as an invitation to communion, we see the celebrant hold up before the congregation the consecrated bread and wine and declare these words that we hear from St. John the Baptist this morning, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sin of the world. This the celebrant declares after having already performed the fraction. The priest takes the host and breaks it and says, Alleluia, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Echoing the stories of Passover in the book of Exodus. You may have become too well accustomed to these parts of the liturgy to realize the apparent absurdity here. To state the obvious, there are no sheep up here anywhere. What we hold and what we taste and see is not a lamb, but bread and wine. And yet throughout the Eucharistic liturgy, we hear over and over that the Christ we meet in bread and wine is our Passover lamb. This mass, this Eucharistic meal, this bread and wine, it is also a paschal sacrifice, a Passover meal, a slaughtered lamb. I wonder how often you think about Passover when you approach this altar. I'm going to guess probably not a lot, which is reasonable enough. This celebration of the sacrament is a reverent and sacred and somber act, even as it is also a celebration, a feast, a banquet. And the last thing we want to imagine interrupting our solemn worship or joyous praise are images of slaughtered lambs and bulls of blood and bleeding cries and stained doorposts. We don't want to think about Passover. Maybe you think about Passover as a brutal or barbaric, or primitive act, and you're wondering, can't we just move on from all this blood and sacrifice? And yet, in a few minutes, you'll be presented with a chalice and told the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. I had a pretty hard time myself coming to see this Eucharistic meal as a Passover sacrifice. Now, to be sure, I believed it conceptually. I had read Augustine and Aquinas and Newman. There's an undergraduate paper written on the subject somewhere deep in my files that will never see the light of day. But I knew this to be a true Paschal sacrifice, a real participation in Christ's one offering on the cross. I just couldn't see it in the liturgy. As far as I could tell, this was a meal, but not a sacrifice. Until one day, in Divinity School Chapel, early in the morning, still half asleep from a late night of studying, I glimpsed it. The celebrant, a soft-spoken, somber English priest that I had come to know quite well, arrived in the liturgy at the fraction. He took the host and broke it 
with a deafening cracking sound. And he declared, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. As he held up the broken body of our Lord in his hands. And the way he held that broken host said more about Christ's paschal sacrifice than anything I had read up until that point in theological literature. Father David held up the host with near limp hands, as if the weight of this sacrifice was almost too much to bear, as if he really meant it, that this offering was a true and real participation in Christ's death as if he and we and the sins of the world were responsible, culpable for this death of our Lord, as if we had just sacrificed the Lamb of God. Indeed, Christ is our sacrificial Lamb, slain for us, for the forgiveness of sin. This is why the writers of the New Testament, especially St. John and the author of Hebrews, continually draw on the imagery and language of the Old Testament sacrificial system to explicate the meaning of our Lord's death. But this morning, it's not Good Friday. It's the second Sunday of Epiphany. And so today we contemplate not so much the death of Christ, the offering of the Passover lamb, Rather, in Epiphany, we ponder the manifestation of Christ's incarnation, that in Christ, God became man. But even more than this, at least we learned this morning, that in Christ, God becomes a lamb. So I want to reflect on this mystery, that in the incarnation, God manifests supreme vulnerability in coming to us, the vulnerability of a lamb. The power of the incarnation is manifested in weakness. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. In Epiphany, we celebrate the manifestation of God in Christ to the world. And often this manifestation, this revelation of the glory of God comes in the form of great power and might in miracles and signs. But this morning we are confronted with a different form of God's self-disclosure in the incarnate Christ. It's a, a canonic form. God takes up residence in this world in a position of defenselessness of exposure, of vulnerability, God becomes lamb. It's no coincidence, I think, that the context for John's declaration of Christ the lamb is Jesus' baptism. This action of our Lord, in which he humbles himself to share our very baptism, is a manifestation of divine humility. He who is without sin, nevertheless, is submerged in the waters of repentance for us. And something about this whole business of God becoming incarnate in human flesh and submitting that flesh to John's baptism, something about all of this turns John's mind to the image of a lamb. 
Scholars debate about what exactly from the Old Testament John has in mind when he makes this declaration, behold the Lamb of God. Perhaps he's referencing the Passover story from Exodus in which God instructs Israel to select and kill a Passover lamb, painting its blood on their doorposts in order that Israel might be saved. Perhaps he's referencing those famous words of Isaiah, which spoke of the suffering servant of God. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep dumb before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. Regardless, when John sees the God-man in such great humility, he sees a lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, John, of course, has been baptizing. In his itinerant preaching ministries, declared over and over, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. John has been called to preach repentance to Israel, their renewal, their restoration and preparation for the coming Messiah. And those who respond to the urgency of his call, John baptizes an outward sign of an inward turning to God in preparation for God's anointed. John is baptizing in order to turn the hearts of God's people back to God in repentance. But then in our reading from the Gospel of St. John this morning, we are given yet another reason why John has been doing all this baptizing. For this I came baptizing with water, he says, that he... Christ might be revealed to Israel. So there's a reason, in other words, why we celebrated the feast of the baptism of our Lord last Sunday, the first Sunday of Epiphany. In his baptism, Jesus' identity is revealed. This is why John is here. This is the meaning of his baptism, to reveal what has been revealed to him, by the Holy Spirit, that this man is God's Son, the Savior of the world. In other words, John's purpose in the economy of salvation is to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way of the revelation of God in Christ. His role is an epiphany role, to make Jesus' identity known. John is the great pointer to the Christ and his salvation. And yet, as he points with an outstretched finger to Israel's Messiah, we hear again those strange words. What does he say? Not behold the mighty arm of God. Not behold the king of glory. No. He says, behold the lamb of God. Behold your savior, says John, He comes not as a mighty warrior, not as a charismatic leader, or a glorious king, but as a lamb. Few people have captured the mystery and paradox of John's declaration of Christ the Lamb better, I think, than the 20th century poet Denise Levertov. In 1982, she published her six-part poem, Mass for the, for the Day of St. Thomas Didymus. The poem, which Levertov later called her agnostic mass, 
exhibits the doubts and questionings of a half-believer, like, like Doubting Thomas, as Levertov was, who is yet haunted by the presence of Christ. The six parts, each reflecting a piece in the order of the Mass, from the Kyrie to the Gloria to the Credo, were a long time in the making. They reflect Levertov's own journey from unbelief to faith over many, many years. She writes that she began that poem as a personal secular meditation on what she called the unknown God, the power surging in the dynamism of creation. But over the course of the poem's movement and in writing the poem, she reflected later on, the unknown God became, began to be revealed to me as God and further as God revealed in the incarnation of Jesus. So, in the fifth movement, for instance, Levertov records her coming to an awareness of the world's profound vulnerability and contingency, its susceptibility to what she calls its gross cacophony of malevolence. But it is this vulnerability, she writes, which points her to the mystery of the incarnation. The word chose to become flesh, she writes, in the blur of flesh we bow baffled. Which leads her then to the sixth movement, Agnus Dei, a meditation on the words of St. John the Baptist in the Mass. Behold the Lamb of God. Still reeling from the chaotic contingencies of the previous section, into which our Lord condescends, Levertov captures the paradox, even the terror, of this revelation of Christ's incarnate presence in the form of a lamb. Listen to what she says. Given that lambs are infant sheep, that sheep are afraid and foolish and lack the means of self-protection, having neither rage nor claws, venom nor cunning, what then is this Lamb of God? She goes on. What terror lies concealed in strangest words, O Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world? An innocence smelling of ignorance, born in bloody snowdrifts, licked by forbearing dogs more intelligent than its entire flock put together, God then encompassing all things is defenseless? Omnipotence has been tossed away, reduced to a wisp of damp wool? That is the terror of John's words, that God becomes a lamb, God becomes weak. What do we do with a God who comes to us in the form of a lamb? Who disposes with any means of self-protection, who exchanges unbounded power for wispy, damp wool, who becomes utterly defenseless, even to the cross, exactly when we want a mighty power to save us. How can this God save us? That's the question John's declaration forces us to ask. What good is a lamb? Levertov goes on. And we frightened 
bored, wanting only to sleep till catastrophe has raged and clashed, seethed and gone by without us, wanting then to awaken in quietude without remembrance of agony, we who in shame-faced private hope had looked to be plucked from fire and given a bliss we deserved for having imagined it. Is it implied that we must protect this perversely weak animal whose muzzles, nudgings, suppose there is milk to be found in us, must hold in our icy hearts a shivering God? St. John the Baptist tells us of the Savior we could not have wanted. Nothing about our situation, our pain, our darkness, our sin, our icy hearts, would prompt us to desire a shivering God, much less a lamb. We want a God who plucks us out of our vulnerability, not one who enters into it. But John the Baptist tells us of the God we desperately need. We need the Lamb of God. We need the God who enters into our deepest vulnerabilities and fills them with his presence and redeems them. We need a Savior who knows the weakness of our frail nature, the fragility of our existence, the pain and anxiety of our defenselessness against sin and suffering and evil and ourselves. We are sheep, and we have gone so far astray. Astray from goodness, astray from grace, and astray from God. And only a sheep can lead us back. Only the Lamb of God. Because Christ the Lamb knows fully our vulnerability. He knows it to its depth. But he knows also the way back to God because he knows even more fully the heart of the shepherd. So behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and blessed are we who are now invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.